Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we want to bow before you right now, Lord, just acknowledging your presence, acknowledging the blessing of the scriptures that we have to study, Lord. You have not left us without a guide. You have not left the truth uh, in the realm of subjection and opinion. Lord, you have defined it. You have clearly laid it out. Even as Ernie prayed, Lord, that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who intends to communicate to us what it is we need to know. And the primary way that you do that is through the pages of the scriptures, Lord God. And so we look to them because your word is alive and active and it penetrates our hearts and it guides us and it directs us. And so may your Holy Spirit uh, equip us to be, the, uh, be our teacher, give us understanding to the words that we read tonight, that you would truly impact us and we would continue to grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Returning to the old ways is the title of tonight's message. In Galatians, the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Christians of that region because they were attempting to go back to idolatry. The idolatry that they were used to was worshiping idols, things made out of wood and stone, these little, these little images. But the idolatry that they were now tempted to go to was the idolatry of legalism. They had believed the lie that you had to be circumcised, that you had to live like a Jewish person before you could become Christian. And they wanted to keep these rules to be right with God when Paul and the rest of the scriptures make it very clear that it is not by the law through which we have a relationship with the Lord uh, that we're made right in the eyes of God. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through a relationship with Him. So Paul is writing to the Galatians, and in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, this is what he says to them. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. You guys already served all kinds of idols beforehand and it didn't work for you, he's saying. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? He's saying, how is it that you want to go back to idolatry? Having known God, having walked with God, why do you want to return to the old ways that are insufficient. And I believe that this rebuke in Galatians could be appropriate and could apply to Abraham and his decisions tonight, what we'll see in chapter 20. You see, Abraham, as we know, was called out of a big city, Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham was familiar with the big city life. It's what he grew up knowing. He was able to thrive well in the big city life. He was... uh, in a family of idolatry. They worshiped the idols of that city, of that place. And though he's walked with the Lord for some time now, he finds himself going back to the old ways that he grew up knowing, to big city living, to a land of idolatry. And as we read this chapter, it's kind of similar to Peter, who after the Lord's resurrection, when he felt like he let the Lord down, he went back to fishing. Peter went back to his old ways and Jesus had to show up and set him back on track. 
And that's what we'll see in this chapter as well. The Lord shows up once again, lifts up Abraham from his mistakes, and sets him back on track. So let's jump right into the text. Verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So here Abraham is. He was in the promised land. He was in Canaan where the Lord had blessed him. He made him actually a man of great wealth. By this time, Abraham had so many herdsmen and flocks. He was basically a chieftain, a powerful man in that region of Canaan. The promise of God was coming to fruition. He was growing in power and in riches in the, in the promised land. And as far as we know, he had no real need to depart from the promised land. But after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, after he sees the destruction take place, he decides to go to this metropolitan area and sojourn in and out of the city of Gerar. Now, it could be because he was discouraged because of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some commentators suggest maybe he grew discouraged after seeing God's judgment upon these cities. It could be that he just wanted a change of scenery. We don't really know why Abraham goes to this region. So it's hard to determine the context, but I believe as we read between the lines and read how Abraham responds, that you get a sense that he is drifted a little bit, that he is in a season of discouragement. What we do know about Abraham is that in chapter 12, what we saw was when things got tough in the promised land for him, he went back to his old coping mechanisms. He went back to what he knew, which was go to the big city. He ended up going to Egypt that time. And he got himself into trouble. It seems to be this, this pattern for him, a coping mechanism that he falls back on. And it's interesting to note that God's calling on his life, as God revealed himself to Abraham, he said, I will take you out of the big city. You're going to be a country boy. You're going to go out to the rural land, to this promised land that I will give you, and I will make you increase, and I will make a nation out of you. You don't need all these infrastructures, all these metropolitan areas, I'm going to make that out of you. Not only is that the calling of Abraham, but around the same time, God is judging these large city areas. He judged the five cities in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, rather the four because he spared the little one, right? Zoar. And so at a time when God has called him to be a, a rural country boy and he's judging big cities, it doesn't seem likely that God is leading him to go back. And yet here he is. Something has caused him to return to the old ways to do business in the city again. So let's see what happens. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So if you were with us with Genesis chapter 12, you're having deja vu right now. This is almost exactly what happened in chapter 12 with Pharaoh. He told this lie to Pharaoh. Well, she's my, she's my sister. And Pharaoh's like, well, that's great because she's a good-looking lady. And so Pharaoh takes her and makes her a part of his harem. And God has to step up and supernaturally intervene and rescue Sarah. And that's exactly what we'll see in this chapter. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, does Abraham have an agenda to try to just get rid of his wife? Maybe he just doesn't like her. It, doesn't it make you wonder? It, it kind of reveals to me that there's something unhealthy about their relationship. Like he's so willing to cast her aside. 
Now, we could try to view this through the lens of, of, of their culture and try to understand how this might have been a little bit more normal for them, but no, I think no matter how you cut this, it's a fail on Abraham's part. And here's why I think that. Number one, if, if Abraham knows going to a big city is going to put his wife in danger, he shouldn't be going there to begin with. Like if I was going to go on vacation in San Diego and I knew there was going to be a rich man there trying to take my wife, I'd probably change my vacation plans. Or, I, or I'd go without my wife. If I had to go to San Diego, I would just leave my wife at home, right? If I really loved my wife. So that's, that, that option wasn't considered here by Abraham. Secondly, giving his wife to another man should never even be an option. Are you with me? Like, it shouldn't be plan B or C. It shouldn't be plan Z, but for some reason, it's like his go-to A plan. We're going to do that thing we talked about, right, babe? Okay, all right, let's do this. It's like, no, you shouldn't even have considered that, especially in light of the fact that Sarah was such an important part of the promise of God in their life. And, and one thing the Lord spoke to me as I read this and was preparing for this study was that usually our return to the old places that we came out of can be a return to the old behaviors as well. When we return back to the old places that God delivered us from, it can result in the old behaviors coming back out of us. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time to go to your old friends in the world and, and represent Christ and love them to Christ. There is a time perhaps for you to go back to the old scenes so that you can shine for Christ. But you need to be careful, especially if you're a new Christian. We ought not to be so confident that we can go back to our old friends thinking we won't be influenced negatively. You need to be aware of their influence. You need to be careful that you're not too confident to go back to the old places you used to hang out and not be hit with the same old temptations. You need to be aware. Like Peter says, you need to be vigilant because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't get too comfortable going back to the world. And don't be too comfortable having one foot in the world and one foot in church. That doesn't work either. We need to consider can I go back to this place without it influencing me? John Corson is a, an amazing Bible teacher. He's from Oregon, and he's an old Calvary guy. I kind of grew up in the Lord listening to John Corson. And he has amazing Bible commentary if you're looking for good commentary. But one thing that John Corson would ask is, he'd say, are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? And he'd explain, see, a thermometer changes to the temperature of whatever environment it's in. Hey, it's a cool 55 outside, and I, baby, I'm cool. I'm 55, look at me. Just like you, hey, I'm just the same as you. Man, it's 100 degrees outside, I am hot too. I'm 100 degrees, I will adapt to whatever my environment is. What, are we wearing shades, are we wearing hats? I wanna fit in here, what are we doing? How can I look more like you? That's a, th that's a thermometer. Are you a thermometer? Are you too adaptable? Do you try too hard to fit in and not hard enough to stand out? You might be a thermometer. Be careful. Or, he said, are you a thermostat? What does a thermostat do? Well, a thermostat reads the temperature of its environment, but it seeks to change it to what it should be. It seeks to change the environment to what it could be. Is that, is that more you? Does that describe who you are? Are you able to go back to these places and be like, wow, this place needs Jesus, and you be that Jesus that that place needs? 
you bring the change that that place needs. If you are good at being a thermostat, chances are you have that maturity to be able to go out and witness to your friends. But be careful because if you come across environments that end up changing you more than, they, more than you change it, you need to avoid those places. If, it, if there's an environment that makes it difficult for you to represent Christ, then you shouldn't be going to those places. Abraham becomes a thermometer as he goes back to the old places, to the old things and the old ways. And what we see with Abraham is it changes his priorities. It messes his priorities up as he goes back to the world, back to the old ways. What was Abraham's priorities? They should have been the same as what our priorities should be. God first, spouse second if you have a spouse, others, yourself. In fact, this is what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus loved God the Father first and foremost. He was submitted to the will of the Father to the point that he laid down his life for his bride so that he would have a spotless, beautiful bride, the church. He loved others beyond the church, even the enemies who he knew would not receive him. He still laid down his life. He still showed them mercy. He still spoke truth to them, putting himself last. This is the model that we've been given. And yet Abraham doesn't exhibit that here. If Abraham were to exhibit these priorities it would have looked more like him coming saying, hey, I want to honor God. I really, I want to do what God wants to do in my life. I want his plans fulfilled, which means I really need to protect Sarah with every fiber of my being because she's the beautiful wife God has given me and she is so much a part of this plan. I need to protect her and I need to be mindful of my witness to others. If I am going into a city, I need to be mindful of how others view me because I, want, I love others and I want to see them come to know God. And so in doing these, I will put myself last. But that's not what it looks like. In fact, Abraham completely flips his whole thing upside down. He comes into the city and he's like, well, first and foremost, I just don't want to die. If this is about saving my own skin. But I'll, I'll consider the needs of others. Like, who am I to deny Abimelech, you know, the right to take my wife. It's, he's the king of the region. So I'll go ahead and yield to that. So he puts others above his own spouse, which is never, ever a good idea. For those of you who are married, for those of you yet to be married, especially you husbands, your wife should know and feel like she is more valued in your eyes than the other people in your life. That is healthy. That's what it should look like. But Abraham, unfortunately, puts Sarah at a very distant third, putting this king above Sarah, and then God gets last place as Abraham makes these plans, compromising God's promise in his life. Verse 3, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Could you imagine having a dream like that? You're sitting there and all of a sudden, like you see the Lord of glory. Like, you know, this is God. This is the creator. And you're like, oh, he's going to talk to me. And he turns around and he's like, you're a dead man. <laughs> I picture him like, was it Mr. T? He was like, uh, you dead, sucker. Or I'm going to kill you, sucker. Or however he says that, you know. Although God probably wouldn't talk like Mr. T. But that's what I picture like, you're dead. Like, I'm going to kill you. And the Lord of all creation is, going to, is telling you this. What do you do about that? I would be, I would be worried. 
I'd be concerned. And Ahimelech is rightly so. And by the way, know this. God's threat is God's mercy. If God really wanted uh, Abimelech dead, he'd have been dead. He wouldn't have said anything. But, but God is trying to get things. To, he, he's, he's rerouting him. He's drawing him to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Verse 4, Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. It's funny that he's like, I did this with integrity. I'm, I'm sleeping with another woman. Uh, but it was, I, I, it, well, I was playing by the rules of my land. It's like, God's like, your integrity? Okay. He's like, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, like according to your standards. I understand the process. And it was I, the Lord says, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God's like, I know, I understand the situation, and I'm here to make sure that this does not happen. I'm drawing a hard line here. I'm intervening here, Abimelech. And I find it interesting. Anytime the Lord steps up and intervenes in the free will of man, I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating. We know God has given us free will. He's given us the ability to make decisions, to choose. And yet in this text and in a lot of other texts throughout the Scriptures, we see there comes a time where God will intervene and overrule your free will and will overrule my free will. And it, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Like, why would God intervene here in this situation, but He wouldn't intervene here in that situation? And as we talked about a few weeks ago, only God knows the eternal outcome of these situations. Therefore, only God is capable of making those judgments. But I, I believe God is intervening here in this instance and violating even Abimelech's free will that he otherwise would have practiced because he was not about to let any man ruin his plan of salvation. I think that's what's really going on here. Barnhouse, who had some amazing commentary on this chapter, he, he noted that at this point, Sarah was likely recently pregnant with Isaac. So the donations of another man, if you will, the seed of another man introduced here could cast serious doubt on the promise of God, could cast serious doubt on the, uh, the lineage of Isaac and on through to the Messiah who would come. This was messing with God's plan of salvation. And so God intervenes. You see, I picture, I picture God's sovereignty. A lot of people have discussions about God's sovereignty and they try to put it in a box and try to understand it. To me, I picture, one thing that helps me understand it is I picture it like it's a, a powerful train, is God's sovereignty, okay? And this train is headed for the salvation of souls. It's headed for God's glory and for the salvation of souls. And this will be accomplished regardless of what any individual does. Now, around this train, we have free will. We can get on this train. We can jump off this train. We can sit down on this train. We can dance in the train. We can admire it. We can scoff at it. The choice is ours. But the moment you try to stop that train, the moment you get in front of that train, you put yourself at odds with God. You put yourself in the position to where He will now overrule your free will. 
God's sovereignty in accomplishing salvation will trump your free will. And if you want to make certain that God will come against you, then listen to me. Get between Him and the people He's trying to save. And God will come against you. That's why positions in the church can be so dangerous. That's why it's dangerous to put yourself in a position of leadership or to become a teacher because now you put yourself as someone who should be directing people to God, removing obstacles for people to get to God, but you yourself can become one of the biggest obstacles in someone else's life. In fact, this is the case when you profess the name of Christ and misrepresent Him. We put ourselves at odds with God when we do this because we get between Him and the people He's trying to save. And God doesn't take this lightly. So God sees Abimelech getting dangerously close to the tracks and He stops him. Verse 7. Now then, He says, return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. I would imagine so, right? Well, I, my, my whole people, are, they're on the brink of destruction, but I just want a few more winks here. I'm going to hit the snooze button a couple of times. Like he's, and in fact, he probably didn't sleep after the dream. He's, he was right up, right awake with urgency. And he called his servants and told them all these things. And the, man, or the men were very much afraid. As I read that, I, I just prayed. I was like, Lord, I, just, I, want, I want people to respond to the gospel that way. If only people would respond to the gospel like this. Listen, you have sin that must be dealt with or you will stand in judgment before God. Unless this sin is dealt with, you will be judged by the living God. And you will experience something worse than death. And people hear this and they're like, whatever, we'll see what happens. I'll talk to God when I get there. Abimelech saw God in a dream. And he knew this was not a God to mess with. If only people would turn and have such urgency like this. 